This episode of Annotated is sponsored by Before the Fall by Noah Hawley. On a foggy summer night, 11 people, 10 privileged, one down on his luck painter, depart Martha's Vineyard on a private jet headed for New York. 16 minutes later, the plane plunges into the ocean. The only survivors are the painter, Scott, and a four-year-old boy who is now the last remaining member of an immensely powerful media mogul's family. Was it merely by chance that so many influential people perished? Events soon threatened to spiral out of control in an escalating storm of media outrage and accusations. Amid pulse-quickening suspense, the fragile relationship between Scott and the young boy glows at the heart of the stunning novel, raising questions of fate, human nature, and the inextricable ties that bind us. Noah Hawley is the creator of Fargo and Legion, both on FX, and he has won almost every top media writing award. Before the Fall by Noah Hawley is now available in paperback, on audio, and as an ebook. Last fall, a new bookstore opened on the west side of Portland, Oregon, in the Washington Square Mall. Editor Sharifa Williams and I went to check it out. This is a fancy mall, right? Like, I don't know much about malls. This seems like a fancy mall. This is a fancy mall, but it's also very strange in that it's nestled right up against a cemetery. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, mean, there's a Tesla store right there. I mean, it doesn't get much fancier than that, right? That's very true. There is a Tesla store. You can tell there's sort of like... I guess upper middle class, older, white crowd. It's, it's like your typical upper class mall mix. And just looking from the outside, like, you know, it looks, it looks like a bookstore. It's got wood floors. It's got spotlighting. I can see the new Michael Crichton in the window. There's the new John Grisham in the window. You know, it looks, it looks like a bookstore. It's a very nice looking bookstore. I would say this is one of the nicer... I I guess the storefront looks nicer than most of the bookstores I've seen in a while in a mall. All right, so let's go and then we'll debrief after the fact. Sound good? good? Sounds great. Let's do it. This new bookstore has so much in common with other bookstores, why were we there, microphone in tow? Because this wasn't your typical mom-and-pop outfit. No, it was created by Amazon itself, bookselling's 800-pound gorilla, who has just opened 13 physical locations across the country. So is that a good bookstore? What what do you think? Is that a good bookstore? It's funny. It's hard for me to define a bookstore by good, but it was very different. I don't see myself going back necessarily, but it was an interesting experience. What's surprising to us about these Amazon bookstores is just how much like a regular bookstore they feel. Sure, there are a few new groupings and Amazon star ratings everywhere, but on the whole, it's more like a variation than a disruption. You know what it sort of felt like? It was almost like the airport bookstore. Yeah, big one. Yes, yes, that's exactly what it felt like. Where it was just like, okay, this is these books have been in front of my face for the last few months, and these are the books. Like, if you're trying to stay on top of what people in general are reading, these are those books for you. But other than that, I don't know. I didn't get anything else from the experience. So what's going on here? Amazon's massive disruption of the book industry was supposed to decimate independent bookstores, to drive them off the face of the earth. But now Amazon is building something that kind of looks like them. The imminent demise of the independent bookstore has been written about time and time again. So why haven't they gone extinct? Hello and welcome to Annotated. I'm Jeff O'Neill. And I'm Rebecca Shinsky. 
In this episode, we try to answer the question, why haven't physical bookstores gone the way of Blockbuster Video and Virgin Records? Why do people still go to bookstores? This podcast and following message are brought to you by Less by Andrew Sean Greer. A wedding invitation arrives in the mail. Your boyfriend of the past nine years is engaged to someone else. You can't say yes, it would be too awkward. And you can't say no, it would look like defeat. On your desk are a series of invitations to half-baked literary events around the world. Question, how do you arrange to skip town? Answer, you accept them all. Arthur Less will almost fall in love in Paris, nearly fall to his death in Berlin, escape to a Moroccan ski chalet from a sandstorm, accidentally book himself as the writer-in-residence at a Christian retreat center in India, encounter the last person on earth he wants to face, and he will turn 50. Through it all, there is his first love, and there is his last, because despite all these mishaps and misunderstandings, Less is, above all, a love story. Andrew Sean Greer is the best-selling author of five works of fiction, Thanks to Less by Andrew Sean Greer from Lee Boudreaux Books for making Annotated possible. It's hard to remember now, but when Amazon was just getting off the ground in the late 1990s, there was another story about the death of bookstores going around. There was even a movie based on it. May I ask who you are? Kathleen Kelly. I own this store. And you are? Joe. Just call me Joe. We'll take these books. Okay. You're going to come back, aren't you? Uh, Of course. See, that is why we are not going to go under, because our customers are loyal. They're opening up a Fox Books around the corner. Fox Books? My daddy? Likes to buy a discount. But don't tell anybody that, honey. There's nothing to be proud of. That was from You've Got Mail, with Meg Ryan as a plucky, starry-eyed bookshop owner and Tom Hanks playing an executive at a big chain bookstore. And Barnes & Noble being played by his company, Fox Books. To be fair, in 1998, when You've Got Mail came out, independent bookstores were closing by the hundreds. At its peak in 1995, the trade organization for indie bookstores, the American Booksellers Association, had more than 5,500 members operating more than 7,000 stores. Just three years later, there were only 3,300 members, a drop of more than 30%. By the time Amazon was really cooking selling print books online in 2005, that number would go down to 1,700 members. And then two years later after the Kindle launched, it bottomed out at 1,400. In just over two decades, independent bookstores had lost 75% of their ranks. Between ebooks and online retailers and the big box players, the pieces seemed in place for the end of the neighborhood bookstore. It's easy to understand why most people thought small bookstores were doomed. Most people, but not everyone. So I'm brilliant and I'm absolutely mad for opening a, you know, a bookstore in 2017. This is Noelle Santos, who we met last fall as she was beginning to plan to open her own bookstore. After spending just a few minutes talking to Noelle, you can tell this isn't a romantic whim. She knows what to expect in terms of sales, depending on the size of her store. It could go from like $200 a square foot, $400 a square foot, depending on where you're located, the foot traffic, etc. And she's thinking about real estate costs, depreciation, profit margins. The industry standard, and even for restaurants as well, it's like 8% of your sales up to like 10%. But for a healthy bookstore, you're looking at about 8 to 10% of your sales you're spending on occupancy costs. She definitely comes across as a hopeful realist. She's looked at the numbers and considered the risks and thinks this is going to work. So we finally asked her why, what or who convinced her that now was a good time to open a bookstore. 
yeah, go right to the top. So we did. My name is Oren Tyker. I am the chief executive officer of the American Booksellers Association. Can you give me a, a thumbnail version of what the American Booksellers Association does? We are uh, a not-for-profit national trade association representing about 2,300 independent bookstore locations all across the United States. Our mission is to help those stores operate more successful and profitable retail bookstores. If you've been listening carefully, you'll notice that Oren just said 2,300 independent bookstores are now open in the U.S., up 64% from just nine years ago. And he sees that number continuing to rise. If you are thinking about opening a store, this is a a good time to be thinking about it. And the fact is there are thousands, and I mean thousands, of neighborhoods and communities across the United States that are under bookstores. So there are lots and lots of opportunities to be able to open an indie store. Just so we have this straight, a few years ago, indies were dead and buried. But now the numbers are up and the future looks bright. What the heck happened? There's a, a Harvard Business School professor who has been doing a study over the last few years about industries reinventing themselves. And one of the industries that he has studied has been retail indie bookselling. Sounds like we have another phone call to make. My name is Ryan Raffaelli. I'm a uh, professor at the Harvard Business School in our organizational behavior unit. Raffaelli has written a lot about older, more archaic industries that have proven to be highly resilient, such as Swiss watches, urban streetcars, fountain pens, vinyl records, and, interestingly, independent bookstores. He spent the last four years going to bookstore trade shows, interviewing groups of booksellers, spending time in bookstores, and talking to patrons, all to figure out why what didn't happen didn't happen. In this period, particularly in the articles that are being written about bookselling and also what the booksellers are speaking about themselves, you begin to see at this period a shift in the way that I think the independent bookselling community begins thinking about itself as opposed to trying to race against these competing factors. Raffaele notes that from the early 90s until about 2007 or 2008, independent bookstores were competing with Amazon and Barnes & Noble in areas they really couldn't win, price and selection. But in order to survive, he found that independent bookstores began to reinvent themselves, or at the very least, reinvent how they talked about what they did and why customers should choose them over cheaper options. I think that's where, when they stop racing and trying to compete head-on in terms of fair pricing and begin to compete on these different dimensions, like the idea of localism and this notion of convening and bringing people in for different reasons, that's where you see the independent bookselling sector start to take off. You'll notice Raffaelli mentioned two things there that help explain the resurgence of bookstores. First, how indies began linking themselves to this larger notion of localism. And second, the idea of community engagement, of local bookstore as a quote-unquote convener. I think someone should open a bookstore if they see a need in their community. Um, It's not a field of dreams situation in my estimation. It's not a hope that if you build it, they will come. This is Josh Christie, a longtime bookseller who recently opened Print, a new store in Portland, Maine. It's already seeing a need that's not being met and doing what you can to fill that need. The old model of bookstores was saying that, you know, people need to get their books somewhere and it's going to be for us. So we're just going to put them on the shelf and hope that people come. That's not what it is anymore. It's bringing people into your town and giving your store a personality. I think that the future of bookstores is going to be very much event-driven, meaning not necessarily just bringing authors to your town, which I think is hugely important to bookstores, but also partnering with the local community and making your store that is a fun and interesting place to be. 
This authentic focus on community is something that's just not in Amazon's wheelhouse, and it partly explains why new bookstores are popping up again. Which brings us back to Noel. This spring, she launched a crowdfunding campaign to raise money to open her store in the Bronx, which will be called The Lit Bar. Her campaign received over $150,000 in pledges, and a big piece of her message is local. There's no more important time for space, safe spaces than today. <laughs> and that's what I hope to have in my community, especially as my neighborhood gentrifies. Um, you know, I want to have a home where new residents and existing population can come together and have a real place to become real neighbors and not this tale of two cities. This focus on localism and community building may not be putting Amazon out of business, but it is working. There are literally millions of American consumers making a decision every day to shop in a locally owned independent business, not just a bookstore, but any locally owned independent business, because it is locally owned. Lots and lots of people get it that those dollars that you spend locally recirculate. Uh, having a unique group of independent businesses serve your community, help make your community different from everywhere else. Honestly, I had a little trouble at first understanding the difference between localism and community engagement, but I think I finally got a handle on it. Okay, think of a flower garden. (laughs) Why am I scared of this metaphor? Don't worry, it will make sense in a second. Every flower garden has flowers, right? That's the community engagement part. Your bookstore is a flower in your community's garden. It's beautiful, and it's great, and you want it. Okay. But the localism piece makes a deeper argument that having a locally owned bookstore and coffee shops and restaurants and movie theaters, these things are the soil. These are the things that if you can get them, make the whole garden grow. Just listen to Noelle talk about what she wants her store to do. The Bronx has this stigma that we don't read, that we're not intellectual, that we're just, you know, the stepchild borough. But that's not the case. And I want to highlight the intellectuals here and, you know, give people something to be proud of and give authors a platform to monetize their work instead of giving all our talent away to the other boroughs. She literally is trying to prevent the erosion of the cultural life of the Bronx. This is a step beyond engagement to a sort of cultivation. And part of that is reminding people that keeping money local matters and that it does good right there in town. This is now something that both new and surviving bookstores are making part of their store's mission and identity. Here's Josh again from print. Some of the stuff we've done was we donated all of our sales one day to the main chapter of the ACLU. We've done a lot of other donations to local organizations, either local organizations or local offices of national organizations like Planned Parenthood. We've also done an event just a couple weeks ago, a book drive for books about the immigrant experience for our local school system. The underlying message is that you aren't paying too much for a book at your local store. You're making an investment in your town or neighborhood, and your dollars matter. Here's the thing, though. You could have been making this case in 1999 or 2004, but the numbers were still falling then. Something else had to happen for this new messaging to work. Independent bookstores had to start talking this way en masse. And that's what Professor Raffaele finds perhaps the most surprising part of this comeback story. It's quite unusual. A lot of the industries that I'd study are hyper-competitive, but what's fascinating about independent bookselling is you have quite a bit of practice sharing. So best practices are shared throughout this industry, and it happens a lot through the convening conferences that the ABA starts hosting around this time of 2007, 2008. And I think this really begins as sort of a top-down approach to say, 
someone coming in in the ABA's leadership structure enabling these local independents to see themselves as this collective force that oh, we can compete on different dimensions and we're going to help each other do that. Unlike Swiss watchmakers, a local bookstore in Maine doesn't compete with one in the Bronx, so there's no reason not to share experiences and best practices. In fact, if it keeps money in another indie rather than going to a giant corporation, that's a win. So bookseller crosstalk not only has a strategic benefit, it reaffirms independent bookselling as an identity, even a brand. One of the things that happens is is that the independents start realizing that what's good for me is also good for the category. And as the consumer can begin to conceptualize the category as being unique and distinctive from other forms of how they buy their books, that actually helps the, the category of independent bookselling. And I know I'm in an independent bookstore because there's certain things that are happening in here. I don't want to make too much out of You've Got Mail as an authority on the state of bookselling in the late 20th century, but after hearing all of this, it sure seems that Meg Ryan did it all wrong. Like, instead of trying to connect her store to a larger story about independent bookstores and get ideas from other booksellers, she gets this encouragement from her boyfriend. You are a lone read. You are a lone read. Standing tall, waving boldly, in the corrupt sands of commerce. I am a lone reed. Lone reed. I am a lone reed. Here, she isn't seeing herself as part of a larger movement or collective identity. She's just a lone reed. Right. And instead of making an affirmative case about the value of locally owned businesses, she makes a negative case along the lines of fair pricing. I have met Joe Fox. And I've heard him compare his store to a price club and the books in it to cans of olive oil. Speaking of Fox Books, I want to go back to the part about Amazon's bookstores. You and Sharifa went out to one. Do you think indies should actually be worried? You know, it's funny. If anything, these stores care even less about being your local place than the Barnes & Noble does. They don't even care if you buy your book in that store. And while the staff was nice enough, no one who's ever been to an independent bookstore would mistake it for one. Is it better or worse than you thought it was going to be? It's about the same. I assume that it would be a place I didn't necessarily need to go, and I think that that remains true. There's a part of the bookstore experience for me that I felt was missing here. So while these new Amazon stores don't yet seem to be a direct threat, no one we talked to is resting easy. Competition from powerful corners might have thinned the herd, but the bookstores that are still around are more ready than they've ever been. I think the future of bookstores is really what's going on in bookstores right now. Uh, Myself and my partner and a whole generation of people that are opening bookstores, the whole time they've worked in books, maybe even the whole time they've been readers, Amazon has existed. Barnes & Noble has existed. Borders had existed. Um, Ebooks for most of my career and most of the career for a lot of people that are opening stores have existed and we're doing it anyway. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff O'Neill, and directed by Jeremy Desmond. Sound editing and design by Kyle O'Neill. Special production assistance from Sharifa Williams, Blair Anderson, and Rita Mead. Our thanks to Josh Christie of Print, a bookstore in Portland, Maine. Oren Tyker of the American Booksellers Association. Professor Ryan Raffaelli of Harvard's Business School. And Noel Santos of the Lit Bar, coming soon to the Bronx. 
Be sure to check the show notes for this episode or go to bookriot.com slash annotated for how to enter Hachette's giveaway of all 12 books sponsoring this season. We'll be back with another new episode in two weeks. Thank you.